Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is Michael Shapiro, your host. Today, I'm beyond pleased to have Maestro Giancarlo Guerrero. Hello, Giancarlo. How are you today? Hi, Michael. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to see you in good health. I know we both suffered through various degrees through this pandemic, but we're sitting here talking on a wintry day in Chappaqua, and how is it where you are? Nashville is a beautiful sunny day, but it's in the upper 20s. So yes, it is very cold. Definitely, this is when I miss uh, Costa Rica the most. Yeah, Costa Rica is gorgeous. I saw something recently about Costa Rica, which is your second country because you were born in Nicaragua. But in Costa Rica, years ago, I mean 20, 30 years ago, a lot of the rainforest had gotten smaller. But apparently through governmental intervention, it's gotten bigger, which is very good for the planet. I'm just curious, going way back, um, do you think the culture of your upbringing prepared you for this life that you have? Yes and no. In many ways, uh, first of all, like you said, I was born in Nicaragua. I ended up moving to Costa Rica uh, in my teenage years because you may remember uh, the civil wars in, in, in Central America, especially in the late 70s. And my family was caught in the middle of it. And uh, we ended up moving next door to Costa Rica, which opened their doors uh, because Nicaragua literally became a communist country overnight at the height of the Cold War. Ortega, remember. I remember, yeah. And, uh, and had we stayed in Nicaragua, there is no way I would have become a musician because there were really no programs there. I mean, Nicaragua was mostly a dictatorship and, and culture and music were not important, unlike Costa Rica, which, you know, a country with a, an army that supports education and they had a national symphony orchestra, which had recently started a youth symphony program. So by us moving to Costa Rica, it gave me the opportunity to at least have access to a musical education. But... I came from a non-musical family. Um, my parents or my siblings did not even know how to read music. Nobody in my immediate family, even as of today, doesn't even know how to read music except for my, my daughters. So did Aaron Copeland, by the way. You know, and uh, but they love music. In my household, my father listened to mariachi music and my mother listened to Julio Iglesias. So listen, Beethoven was completely unexistent in my household, but they did feel that I had an ear for music. My father apparently said that I used to sing when I was a child. And arriving in Nicaragua, in Costa Rica, having basically lost everything, uh, we basically left with our clothes that we had on, arrived as refugees. And uh, uh, they wanted to keep us busy, the kids, mm. you know, and a good way to keep us busy after school to hopefully stay out of trouble. And for me, they saw an ad on the newspaper that the Youth Symphony had, uh, uh, you know, auditions to let people in. So they brought me in and somebody played a note on the piano, la, la, la. They're like, oh, you're in. And uh, that's really <laughs> where my training started. And like most kids... It was a hobby. It was something to do after school. But eventually, you know the drill. It becomes something more passionate. And here I am. Sounds like my audition at Juilliard. <laughs> Don't you love that? Hey, you should have loved my, my percussion audition. They gave me a pair of sticks and they went, go, click, 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 click. You're in. Well, let's, talk, <laughs> let's talk about percussion. Because I've only, I think you're the only second conductor that I have met who started out as a percussionist. Kuit Mazo was the other who I knew in New York when he was here. Now, one thing about being a percussionist, oh, Harold Farberman, my teacher, was also a percussionist. Simon Rattle. Oh, that's right. I don't know mm -hmm. Simon personally, but no. Uh, Claudio Abalo used to play timpani. 
Wow, you're killing me now. Oh, yeah, All no, right. there's, this is a little known secret. Yes, there's quite a few of us closeted percussionists that, in my case, I just dropped a stick and moved to the front of the orchestra. Apart from Simon, who has great ability of turning a phrase, let's talk about you. One thing I have noticed, however, in people who are percussionists, that, of course, the, the stereotype is sense of rhythm, pulse, shaping, perhaps, entrances, <laughs> <laughs> because of few and far between often in good and well-written music for percussion, as Rimsky says, use them sparingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but your sense of phrasing is so beautiful. The way you can turn a phrase. I mean, for people who want to see an example of this, just look at the example with, I think, a Galician orchestra, I think it is, of your Hector Berlioz um, uh, is it the Roman Carnival? It's fabulous. The way you just... I mean, it's just fabulous. And the playing is precise, which for me as a composer is magnificent to listen to. But it's the way you shape it and the irony and the humor of what you bring to Berlioz. So let's talk about shaping a phrase. You're a percussionist. You play various percussion instruments. But then where did the sense of phrasing come in? It's innate, but you had to have had some influences. Absolutely. Um, you have to remember that as a percussionist, which I don't play anymore. It's been you know over 30 years that I performed, and I miss it terribly, by the way. What I miss the most is the camaraderie, hanging around and conducting is a very lonely profession, but, 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 but playing is something that I love to do, and I miss it every day, the older I get. Uh, but you know, I ever since I was in the youth orchestra, I was very lucky to be surrounded by just really fabulous musicians in all of the instruments. And as I've gotten older, one of the greatest joys is my relationship with some amazing soloist musicians, orchestra musicians from not only Nashville, but all over the world. And you know what? There is something about what we do, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, that there is this 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 influence that just being around them. You, you, you think differently. You start to uh, approach music in a different way. When, when you're close to a great musician and they do it so naturally, there's something that inspires you to say, well, how do I need to see this in a different way? Another thing that was very important to me is that, my God, even to this day, it's always been about the music. I listen to music. I cannot help myself every day. I need to have music in my life. Absolutely. I, to this day, attend performances like crazy. When I'm on the road, I go listen to my colleagues. And I especially love it when if I go to a big city like Frankfurt or Berlin, where there's five or six orchestras right. and opera houses, right. I will go listen to them. And I was lucky enough when I went to Northwestern in Chicago that it was the Schulte years. And it was magical to go every week to hear that rocks rock band as i called it it's a great and rock band. great soloist and all of, of course the touring orchestras that came through so yes what we are is a collection of watching all of these incredible ensembles and just basically getting inspired of how they approach it how they do it and how to think beyond what's actually on the page but more importantly there's also something that comes from years of experience as you know yeah. as a conductor uh is podium hours and yeah. I look at myself, at, you know, when I started 25, 30 years ago, and I'm not the same person I was even a year ago. And uh, that has shaped my music making. It has changed the way that I think about it. I always buy a new score, by the way, which also is very helpful. Whenever I conduct a new piece, whether it's Beethoven 5, um, I always get a brand new score and try to approach it as if I've never seen this piece ever, uh, which is difficult, as you know, because you come with baggage. But then after studying it, 
like from nothing, I always compare it to my old scores. And it's so interesting to say, what the heck was I thinking back then that, you know, nowadays I would never do it the same. So it's, to me, it's great how music evolves That's and wonderful. phrasing and all that. I, th I think of it in the same way. Uh, something that I, that I do on a particular day, I'm always open to change it the next day. And when you work with great orchestras like Galicia in Spain, when you a truly amazing orchestra, and you might come with an idea, but then the English horn player who has one of the biggest solos does something interesting. You go, I'm going to go with that. And then you basically Absolutely. say, I'm going to use that because that's a much better idea, Absolutely. whether it's the breath or holding one particular note. So really, I mean, it's just enjoying the ride and, and, and have, being open uh, uh, to, to new and wonderful ideas. Well, this is fab. I love talking shop. You know, there's a great story. I met Elizabeth Fortwangler, uh, the, the widow of Wilhelm uh, through Karl Bambiger, my teacher, when I was at the Zurich Opera years ago. And she told a great story that she once saw Fritwangler in his study, studying Brahms first, and he was going to conduct a Berlin. She said, Wilhelm, how many times have you conducted? Oh, I don't know, 60, 70 times. She says, why are you looking at this score? And he said, I might miss something. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. listen, you're not from Paris of the 1840s. To use again the example of the Roman Carnival Overture, 1850s, whenever it was written. But you got the elan of the piece. <laughs> you did. You do. And it's not just this music. If you talk to, to my old colleague Chris Rouse or his recordings, which is a wholly different style that you've done, or the Leshnoff recently, or Jennifer Higdon, I, all of my colleagues and friends, you, they're very, very different styles, but you obviously dig into it. So let's talk about that. It, whether it's Beethoven or a new piece, how are you finding the style in the music apart from buying a new score? Mm -hmm. um, well, getting to know the, com the composer really helps. And when I do the contemporary music, whether it's Jennifer or Roberto Sierra or Jonathan Lechnoff or Chris Rouse, uh, God rest his soul. Um, I, I have to tell you that uh, get it, the fact that I know these people and I've gotten to know them over many years and now that I champion the music, um, really makes me understand where they're coming from, you know? And uh, it it's always has been probably the, the driver of this. The whole reason for me to do this is to hang out with my friends, to hang out with my colleagues. I feel Whether so, it's right? working with Maniacs or, or Gil Shaham or Yo-Yo Ma or, or Hilary Hahn or whoever. Uh, yeah, the music is great, but really we just want to sit down and after the concert go out and, and have a wonderful dinner and, and catch up on our own lives. It's much better, that, isn't it? <laughs> And the same thing is with, with, with these composers. Maybe it's also the fact that I'm a very, very, very curious person musically. There's very few composers that I will not do. And it's just basically because their music just doesn't connect with them. It's not that there's something wrong with them. Oh. It's just that over the years, I have come to understand that there is, there is a repertoire and the same way that there is literature and there is art that speaks to me because of my upbringing and because of where I've come from. And there's other stuff that, 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 that just doesn't do it for me. And there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, something that you may think may be the greatest thing ever for me may not be as interesting. And I've had to learn to be honest about it. Yeah. I have had to learn that Good. whenever I stand up and I do a piece that I, I may not feel completely devoted to it, the musicians will know. And more importantly, the audience will know. They're not, I mean, there's certain something in the, in the telepathy of what we do that you can tell. And uh, because of that, over the years, I have learned to basically leave some stuff. That's what guest conductors are for, by the way. Well, you know, the music director should not be able to do everything. I mean, who can do everything? Nobody. Okay. So I focus on the stuff that I do well, 
and and then the other stuff you know what let them come but at the same time i keep an open mind that hopefully someday that it will there'll be that spark in my mind perfect example messian to me messian i i would have never done his music and then because of janice thibode the great pianist who was basically you know telling me you need to do turangalila this is your piece you need to do it you need to do it he's amazing and I said, no i'm not gonna do this is i i i covered for it when i was in minnesota as a social conductor i i didn't like it it was a, a pain in the neck yeah. and then two years ago i did it and i can now tell you there is in my life before turangalila and after turangalila it has become a revelation and i will forever be grateful to janice Thibode for, for for pushing me for it and uh, so, yes, I'm open that maybe someday some works that I may not have an affinity for all of a sudden become attractive. One never knows. I mean, Bruno Walter talked about getting sick and studying the scores of Bruckner and who he had no response to. And then suddenly he had a response to it. Mm-hmm. I'm still not there on Bruckner, <laughs> by oh, the way. But, you know, it, again, it's all about, about you know, uh, the, the, where how you were introduced to it. I was lucky enough in Minnesota that I got to work very closely with Stanislav Skorbachevsky. That's who great. was perhaps the greatest Brugnerian until he died a few years ago. And he yeah. was a father figure to me. And also Good. in Chicago with Schulte, which was also a very special place. So since then, I do all of the symphonies, all of them. I am a, a huge fan, wow. but I agree with you. It's not the easiest to program. Um, you'll, have and, to t- uh, you'll have to teach me about that. I'm not there yet. You know, I'll have to come here. you do Brugner. Oh, I, it, I, <laughs> and I do all of them. I've done all of them, most of them by now. And uh, I have to tell you, my favorite, the first symphony. That's very interesting because other people you know, tell me I, I have to listen to number eight. They say eight is the big one. And the reason, going back to style. Right. Um, when you think of like, when you hear like something by Philip Glass, like you immediately know, oh, that's Philip Glass. Whether you like it or not, but you can recognize it immediately. Yeah. It is exactly the same with Bruckner. When you listen to the first symphony, yeah, you know where he was coming from. You may not agree with it, but the guy already had an idea of what he wanted to write. And you put the first symphony next to the last one, the ninth symphony, the unfinished. And yes, there is a connection. The man knew exactly what he was writing, and uh, he stuck with it, and God bless him. Let's talk about Bruckner and Mahler since we're on this subject. I, I love talking shop. Now, Mahler's a whole different, gemischte Salat, you know, an andere Salat. It's not like Bruckner, yeah? So when you're doing Bruckner and the style and the phrasing of Bruckner, the long phrases versus the... I'm here, but I'm here, and then I'm here, and then I'm here of Mahler. But then it's a universe, too. What's your approach? I mean, you're studying, let's say, the, the first symphony of Mahler versus the first symphony of Bruckner. How, um, how, are you, how are you approaching it with that new score that you just bought? You know, there are two things that, that, that you have to understand with the connection of these two composers. Of course, we have the letters, that, you know, which are very fascinating to read. But... With Bruckner, Bruckner and Mahler, there's one particular difference, and that's God. Yeah. With Bruckner, there was no question. Devoted and faithful, and even his pieces, he would write at the end to the memory of, you know, to, to, the, to, the, to the glory of the Lord or to the, mm-hmm. spirit, the Holy Spirit or even to the Virgin uh, Mary, who, of course, he was also a very, very devoted. So for him, the idea of God was not a question it was settled he was completely faithful and devoted with Mahler God was a source of conflict Mm. a huge source of conflict Mm -hmm. beginning with the fact that what is it eight siblings that died in infancy being him 
being the oldest and watching this happen. Suicide. Suicide. Awful, you know, awful. his roommates in the conservatory. Hans and the whole idea of, of being Jewish and then having to convert or converting to get the job in Vienna. So Hugo this was Wolf. I mean, Hugo Wolf, this is a crazy, crazy story, no? I mean, when you think of, but when you think of the tragedy, and again, when you think of the tragedy later with his younger daughter dying so tragically, and you know Alma, and then himself dying at age fifty-one. I mean, yeah, you can see why he would question even God's existence. So this is what is the key. You hear that conflict on every single note and every bar no of Mahler. It's neurotic music. Yeah. The man had issues to begin with, but can you blame him after the life that he led? No. And the professional and in, in the personal. And every note is, 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 is like you said, it's neuro neurosis. It goes everywhere. It's exploding. Right, yeah. It's all these different stages in his life. Right. And even when he is the happiest, you know, with the sixth symphony, he writes the tragic symphony with three hammer blows, <laughs> one of which was removed because he gets, as he was, very uh, superstitious. But with Bruckner, yeah. you hear these long phrases, never-ending cathedrals. It's a cathedral. Where music. Yeah. There is no doubt. There is no question of where he's going. There is no question where all of this devotion and love will will lead him. With Mahler, you feel sorry for the man. And I think Mahler is more accepted in many ways because that's closer to most people. Well, contemporary experience. We all listen. Mahler made tragedy a a, a sport almost. And when you compare it to your own life, you may have your issues, but nothing like that guy had. And now, I think that's why music is by far uh, widely popular because in, 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 in a very deep way, we can all connect very easily to what he was thinking. And Mahler, to me, you may not agree with this, but Mahler is the most popular composer on the face of the earth for the simple fact that every single one of his works, all what, 12 of them? That's it. Symphonies and a few songs are in the repertoire. But they are. Beethoven cannot say that. Mozart cannot say that. I don't know about you, but I don't know Mozart's 14th symphony or Haydn's, you know, symphony number 18. I started at the 29th. That's the first one I conducted. So, again, think about this. I mean, Mahler's entire work, I see what you're saying. Pieces, 13 very pieces, true. Very true. are in the repertoire. At true, some point, true. all of these are being played all over the world. Very true. So, uh, you know, to me, there's something about that that is unique to Gustav Mahler, and I think it's his personal story is incredible. Plus, it's amazing music, and musicians love to play. Well, he knew how to write. Yeah, I will tell you, conducting it, I always say, don't, don't take me wrong, but conducting it is by far the easiest. Yes, playing it is hard, and the whole, you know, structure is difficult. But knowing when to conduct in four or in three, it's all in the score. I know he tells you. I There's know. no guessing involved. Well, he, let, he will he, tell you, brush, but stay in four, you know, push island, but don't, but don't go into two because that means you went too fast. Nick Schleppen. Nick, well, <laughs> let's face it. Mean, his favorite word was Nick. Don't. As a great conductor, you can almost hear it screaming when you see it in the <laughs> So, oh, and I hate it when I hear performances that says Nick Schlepen. And what do they do? They Schlepen. They, 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 they drive. <laughs> and it's not their fault. You know, he wrote that because the music makes you feel like it gets heavier. It's like, don't let it become heavy. Yeah. They fall into the trap. He's basically telling you where the minefields are. Avoid it. It's so true. I want to talk about Kusevitsky. Because I, I like to go back. 
You know, when I talk about the present, I like to go back. And when you just mentioned Mahler, this was not the case in the 60s when I was a student, when I was a young, young student, when Lenny was first doing the symphonies around New York and so forth. Many of them, I, I was told by Jamie, his daughter, for the first time. She says, I remember when he was doing the fourth symphony for the first time with Ari Greist and that recording, okay? In any event, when you look back and you, th- you think of things, when the changes in people's interests, you see different times. And Beethoven was the god. All Beethoven symphonies were done over and over again in the 60s. And then this Mahler craze took over to a certain extent. But going further back to the 40s, and the, the connection that I have through my teacher, Eli Siegmeister, the American composer with Kusevitsky, he remembers going to the 1945 or 44 performance in Carnegie Hall of the Concerto for Orchestra. And he went backstage because he knew Kusevitsky. And Kusevitsky says, Eli, come over. Let me show you the score. See, it has the changes of meter. <laughs> because Kusevitsky loved the fact that he was doing changes of meter, which he was not happy to do, as you know, from his Rite of Spring score. So in any event... Kusevitsky was wonderful. My other mentor, David Diamond, spoke about the way he was open to doing American music in America by an American orchestra. And you've done very similar things. For example, you have a program to promote young composers where you bring in and have your orchestra play through their music, you know, without strings, without heavy press, just so they can hear get the experience of it, which is fabulous. And then your recording projects on Noxos, all of my colleagues, I mean, it's so many of them are overjoyed by this. And I've spoken to them about your recordings and they just are so pleased with them. So talk about what you think is the role now of the American orchestra and Giancarlo Guerrero in this wonderful expansion of the repertoire. You mentioned Kusevitsky, and uh, he is my inspiration in many ways. He is my role model. Uh, uh, over the years, over the past many years now, uh, I have had a wonderful relationship with the Boston Symphony, and uh, I am so proud to be almost part of their family. I mean, it's a fabulous orchestra, and I've worked with them at Tanglewood and at Symphony Hall. And uh, over the years, I, it just become it blossomed into something very special that I look forward every time I'm there. But more importantly, because of the history of, of Kusevitsky. And... Serge Kusevitsky is really, in many ways, the guy that pushed uh, the envelope during his lifetime in the early 20th century of championing the composers of his time, not only moving from from, uh, Russia and then coming to America, but he felt that it was his duty to, like you say, expand the repertoire and promote young composers. The interesting thing was, though, is that he was probably like the least equipped conductor technically to do it because as you correctly said, changing meters for him was tricky. And I'm meaning going from 4-4 to 3-4, let alone 7-16 to 3-16. He couldn't do uh, it. We have the videos to prove it. I love some of those videos that he's got the long baton, the pants are like up to here, and <laughs> even conducting Egmont is a struggle for him. Yeah. But you know what? That did not stop him from putting even his own money to commission the composers of his time, who, by the way, were not nearly as adored and recognized as we are today. And you, like you said, you make a list of the who's who, and it's a Boston Symphony Kusevitsky commission. And beyond Bartok, Prokofiev, Shostakovich, uh, you know, Copeland, 
you name it. What are the barber? What do they have in common? It was Kusevitsky that championed them. Yeah. And the whole idea was, and, and this is where my, my, my inspiration come from, is that somebody has to do it. As artists, it is our duty not only to look to the, to the past, but to the present. I would love to say that I invented the wheel. I did not. I'm just doing what my predecessors have done. And not only Kusevitsky, I will have to go back all the way to Beethoven and Mozart and I'm Bach. About because it. guess what? Those guys had world premieres and they That's had right. champions of their own music. When Mozart died completely penniless, we don't even know where his grave is. It needed people after him to say, we need to play his music, otherwise he's going to disappear. The same thing with Beethoven. I think of Schumann and Brahms and all the people that came after Wagner said, you know, we need to play his music. Yeah. And music has to evolve. And it's not like you play it once or twice. No, you need to play it regularly and get it into the system. And over time, it becomes what we now know as standard repertoire. So when we look back 50, 60, you know, 80 years from Kusevitsky, you know, we now say, wow, all of that great work that he did, now it is pretty much established in the repertoire. But guess what? If I don't do the, it during my time in the 21st century, we're going to run out of it. So in many ways, this is what I see uh, as our biggest mission, which is to expand the repertoire. Yes, look to the, to the path, which is fantastic. But how amazing it is to hear a Beethoven symphony or a Brahms symphony, but being played right after performing a Christopher Rouse piece. You're hearing that Brahms through that prism. So that to me is the, the joy of this. No, Chris and, was very much, his life was experienced by his knowledge of people like Beethoven. There's no question. I spoke to Chris about that. No question. And you have to also understand that, uh, as I said before, I mean, the way that Kusevitsky did it, uh, and they say, oh, how do you do this with the audience? Well, you have to make a case for it. You know, and many institutions sometimes make the mistake that they do the new music, but they put it like the five minute piece at the beginning and they don't even mention it anywhere in their marketing. No. So it's like they're shooting themselves to the foot. We don't even believe in it. So why would the audience buy it? That's so right. to me, one thing that we have done in Nashville is like, no, when we promote our concerts, we promote with the same billing, not only the Rachmaninoff guy, but we also promote Jennifer Higdon in the same billing, even more importantly, because she will be there. Right. And I always won't. tell you, I always, <laughs> by the way, I always do pre-concert lectures before every concert. Good. I've been doing that now for 12 years in Nashville as music director, and that's a great way to connect. When we have a composer, the composer speaks. And I always use this analogy, and I tell the audience, imagine if you were alive in, the, in 1808. I'll give you a, a date, December 22nd, the premiere of Beethoven 5, 6, the fourth piano concerto, the choral, I mean, that crazy night. That was a crazy night. Famous. <laughs> and I said, if you were alive in that on that date and you were walking down the street in Vienna and you saw some ad that said that some guy named Beethoven was doing this crazy concert, and guess what? He's doing a pre-concert lecture before it. Knowing everything you know now, would you miss that? <laughs> of course not. If you were walking in Paris in the 1920s and you saw that some guy named Picasso was giving a, a talk about his painting, knowing everything that you know now, would you miss that? There you go. So I use the same analogy. In Nashville, you're walking down the street and we have Christopher Rouse or Jennifer Higgins or John Adams. Would you miss that? And you will be able to say, I was part of history and you can say, I was there. And that's where the audience takes ownership. And that is the most important part. It's not about the orchestra. All I can do is perform it. But it is up to the audience to decide whether this music will remain or whether it will disappear. Because, you know, there has to be a connection, an emotional connection so that is something that makes me very proud. It's not only the orchestra, it's the audience and the community that feels that they have made an investment and they feel that this belongs to them and they are immensely proud of that. So that is why this project, I think, has been so successful. 
I love this. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I will mention one thing to you. We have a jazz term. My father was involved in the world of jazz in the 40s. And he was friendly with Ella Fitzgerald. He went to the Chick Webb's concert, you know, performances up uptown. And he would always talk about being sent. S-E-N-T. Which is an old jazz term of the emotion responding to it. One thing that we're seeing, especially in theater and in the band world, and now the orchestras are catching on, that if they do what you're saying they should do with new music, people want to go hear it. And younger people want to go hear it. Mm-hmm. It's certainly in my experience. Mm-hmm. To, to end this wonderful discussion, which I don't want to end because it's just so great, um, the pandemic obviously has slowed everything down. A lot of us have suffered terribly. Our friends in the orchestras who are not working and the furlough, the fire, they've gone to do other things. Where do you want this to go now that we've learned this? Now that we've learned what has happened, where do you, where do you want it to go? You know, there has to be a sense of, of deeper appreciation and really understand how privileged we are to have this in our lives, whether we're performers or whether we are audience member. Uh, to me, I think these little things that we, we used to kind of almost take for granted, um, for me at least, has been a personal journey of appreciation and joy to think of, you know, just missing my daily life, missing the music making, missing, I actually just sent a message uh, to my colleagues in the Nashville Symphony, uh, basically telling them that, you know, I missed them. That's the most difficult thing, the personal part of it. Yeah, But to me, I, I hope that at the end of this, uh, there will be a, a, a sense of all of us kind of coming together and, and understanding that first we are there for the service of the music. Yeah, yeah. And then we're there for the service of our communities, the symphony orchestras. And Did what works do? in Nashville doesn't work in New York. And what works in Paris doesn't work in Amsterdam. It's not supposed to be. Different. different. That's why it, it, we have to almost tailor make, um, you know, our, our what we do. But... The conversation started even before the pandemic, the whole conversation about inclusivity. And I think now it's even more importantly after this because we need to expand the table. That We have to put more seats at the table. Mm-hmm. If we just keep inviting the same people over and over, you know, eventually people stop paying attention, in my opinion. So I do believe that along with that understanding of, of how privileged we are, we need to also make sure that other people have access to it. As I said, I come from Costa Rica, Nicaragua, which you would never think are the great meccas of classical music. But I ended up here because somebody exposed me to it. And that is our responsibility. We need to make sure that, that we expand uh, not only uh, the repertoire uh, to it beyond you know, the, usual, you know, the usual suspects, but make the audience understand that there is a reasoning behind it, that people can feel that this also belongs to them. And, uh, and in many ways, uh, we, we, we haven't done as good a job, but I think all of these things will come together in a way that I know we're going to come out stronger. I am absolutely certain of that. And, um, and, and hopefully uh, sooner than later. But there's no question that this has been devastating in every sense of the world, beyond the economical, which is scary mm-hmm. to begin with. But, but professionally, um, not to be able to perform and, 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 as I said, spend time with my colleagues. I went to Europe to work with my orchestra in Poland over in the fall. But even performing was very challenging, socially distanced, and yes, of it's not the same. I mean, for now, I'm willing to put up with it. Uh, but, but if they tell me this is like forever, there's no way. That's completely against everything that we're taught. We're supposed to breathe with each other. That's so 
breath. I know that, that we will get over this. We will we will become stronger. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I, I, I it it's it, it has been a wonderful not wonderful but it has been a learning lesson uh, that I think uh, many of us I mean at least in my personal no, uh, you're not alone you're not alone <laughs> I, I have every day I, I think about it and I miss it even more so I'm my 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 hands are itching already uh, to for the opportunity to come back and make music again live the way that we intended well your joie de vivre your love of music your lovely personality and the way you infuse it in what you do from just one by one to one and one to a hundred players plus chorus. It's obvious, Giancarlo Guerrero. Thank you so much for being on Interplay Conversations in Music. It's been a joy. Thank you, Michael. Be safe. You too, my friend.